The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. Well, recently I saw a very interesting show on TV in 60 Minutes, and it was all about brains and what can happen when we do mind reading. This is a very was a very scientific and fascinating show, and I thought I have to interview this scientist, this wonderful professor, to find out more about what they're doing with brain imaging and finding out how we can actually read minds. Because if we talk about the most intimate thoughts that we have and someone being able to read those, it's clearly an issue of privacy. So tonight we're going to be interviewing Dr. Marcel Adam-Just, who is the D.O. Hebb Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at Carnegie Mellon University. And he is the director of its Center for Cognitive brain imaging. He's a researcher and scientific contributor in a broad set of areas of neuroscience with major funding for over three decades from the National Institute of Health, in which he received a senior scientist award, and the Office of Naval Research. He's made pioneering brain imaging contributions in language processing, multitasking, and thought identification from brain images. That's what he calls thought identification, mind reading, I guess, (laughs) or rather vice versa. We call it mind reading. He talks about thought identification. His findings have been published in major leading journals, and he is the author of one of the leading theories even on autism. He's also recently helped develop the first successful attempt to decode a simple thought from a person's brain activity. And he's demonstrated the brain consequence of cell phone use during driving. And in California, it's against the law for us to drive with uh, a cell phone at our ear. And he's also demonstrated for the first time that the brains of children who are poor readers can actually be changed, not just in how they activate, but also in their very anatomy. In addition to the great scientific research, he's also been involved and relating neuroscience findings to public policy, including providing testimony on the biological basis of autism to the U.S. House of Representatives and testimony on cell phone use, cell phone use 
during driving to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. His research uses brain imaging, the fMRI, which he'll explain to us, and high-level cognitive tasks to study the neural basis of the architecture of human thought. His approach provides an account of the relationship between thought processes and brain activity. There's lots more about him on KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And also you can go to his website at www.cnbc.edu faculty. And then we go slash faculty slash just. And I'm just thrilled. We had a great conversation last week and he is just fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us tonight all the way from uh, Pittsburgh. Well, it's a pleasure to be talking to you today. Well, I saw you in 60 Minutes, and you really are ready for the big time. I'll tell you, we can make you into a TV star. You looked great. You were articulate. It was really a, a fascinating show. Why don't you tell us about that, that show and the experiment that we saw on TV for those who didn't get to see it? Oh, well, uh, thank you for your nice uh, comments. But in fact, I was slightly terrified because we offered to set up a test of our theory with the cameras rolling for 60 minutes. So we had this theory. It was it made a very nice journal article. It was it appeared in Science and another one in uh, PLOS one. But and besides just giving an interview, I thought it would be interesting to put it to the test to actually see if we could, um, as I say, with the cameras rolling, have our theory implemented as a computer program decode the thoughts of someone in the scanner. And moreover, we, we, we asked if we, we could do it to one of their producers. That was scary for her. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was. It was, because... Yes, because she was a little nervous about it, because she wanted it to go well. They were on our side, but it was it was a neutral person. It wasn't like one of our staff members or students or anything. It was one of their people. Not a shill. Exactly. <laughs> so, so with with cameras rolling, this this nice associate producer goes into the scanner, and we show her um, the 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 concepts we want her to think about. For example, we show her a drawing of a hammer and the word hammer, and we ask her to think about what hammer means and uh, what it means to her, how she interacts with a hammer, and so on and so forth. And we showed her um, in, in that demo, I think we showed her something like maybe 10 items. Yes. And uh, previously, we had had our computer program look at the brain activity patterns of about uh, 10 people, and these were 10 probably Carnegie Mellon students, and it learned what kind of pattern was associated with, with, with each of the 10 objects. So it tried to determine what the pattern was, for example, when uh, people were thinking about a hammer. So the program's trained on these other people in walks this total stranger off the street, as far as the program's concerned, gets into the scanner. We show a picture and the word hammer, and the thought arises in her brain, and the program has to determine what the word is. Uh, to, to make it easy on us, we gave it a multiple-choice test, and we said something like, 
was it Hammer or was it uh, Apple or something? And it always, I, I think maybe, I can't remember what it was. It was Nine, 10 out of 10. 10 out of t- 10 yes. times. So, and, and it got we, it right 10 out of 10 times, and you hear this computer voice every time getting the correct answer. It was amazing. Right. And, and we, we set that demo up to make, you know, so we wouldn't look foolish so <laughs> that, you know, the multiple choice test is uh, made it easy on the program because all it had to tell was whether it was Hammer or Apple. Right. But in fact, it could do better than that. It, it, it actually um, would come very close to knowing that it was Hammer, even not in a multiple choice test. Right. So anyway, so it was... Uh, it, it was a little nerve-wracking. I can't remember whether they showed the part when, you know, <laughs> the expression on my face as the as the program was getting these things correct. But I was worried because, you know, it would we could have we could have fallen on our faces. And you didn't there. want to lose your funding. <laughs> <laughs> no, the look on your face was happy. You were just elated, and and so was the the other. Uh, researcher with you oh, and everybody colleague, yeah your my colleague. colleague tom mitchell yes so he, tom mitchell and i have been work, uh, tom is a computer scientist and he's the head of the machine learning department at uh, carnegie mellon so and, uh, machine learning is a field that examines computer algorithms computer programs that learn patterns so uh yes yeah, so machine learning and it's precisely that kind of program that we used to learn the patterns of brain activity that were associated with the various concepts. It was so fascinating. I was so thrilled when you said you'd come on. So let's talk about that big machine. I've had an MRI before, and this is called an fMRI. Could you explain how that's different from the regular F- of the regular MRIs? Uh, yes. So the regular MRI shows the you know the tissues shows your shows your brain or your knee or whatever they're interested at the time. And um, and it's, so the machine is is essentially the same kind of machine. fMRI, the F in fMRI stands for functional MRI, and you know that's sort of an academic use of the word functional. What it really means is it it images the brain work being done, and more specifically, it measures the distribution of oxygen in your brain. And the lucky thing for us brain imaging scientists is that when you start thinking and using a particular part of the brain, oxygen-rich blood flows very rapidly to that area. And so when you see those nice pictures in magazines and newspapers with blobs of activity, sort of this sort of heat map of the brain, what you're really seeing is the places that that are getting the the fresh oxygenated blood. Ah. So... So it's not it's not focusing on the tissue. It's not it doesn't care uh, so much uh, where you. It, it's it's just focusing on where the oxygen-rich blood is, and that that and that that distribution of the oxygen-rich blood uh, changes as you think slightly different thoughts. So if you're sort of focusing very much on the visual puzzle, it'll be one set of areas that that have the hot spots and if you start now trying to understand the difficult sentence it'll be another set of areas and so on so it's changing we think of it as pictures of the brain but it's really a movie of the brain because you know as fast as your thoughts change so too 
This is the distribution of the uh, oxy- oxygenated blood uh, change. So someone who thinks of themselves as more of a visual learner or a kinesthetic learner or an auditory learner or someone who says, like me, I say, gosh, I'm much more left brain being a lawyer than I am right brain being an artist. You know, how does that relate or does it? Well, when you're thinking visual thoughts, then almost surely you will see active activation in, in the parts of the brain that are involved in visual processing. The, the parietal cortex, sort of roughly, you know, at the top of your head. Um, the parietal cortex is very active in that. Uh, of course, uh, the visual cortex at the back of your head. And um, just forward from the visual cortex, uh, sort of behind your ears maybe, uh, parts of the temporal cortex. So you can tell when a person is having a visual thought, is thinking visually uh, from the pattern of activity. Wow. And similarly, you can tell when somebody's doing language processing. Hmm. So we've been able to do that for for quite a few years, and and really, so if you look at the pattern of blobs, you can, from the set of areas that are being activated, uh, a scientist, a brain imaging scientist, can take a pretty good guess at what kind of thinking is occurring. So if you're if you're thinking visually, um, one can tell that. And if you if you think visually a lot of the time, that means that that part of the, that part of your brain is getting more mileage, say, than the other parts. Wow. So would there be, you know, some benefit in the future that maybe those of us who consider ourselves left brain, that if we wanted to be better at spatial and math and art and all that, that, that there would be a way to stimulate that other side to get it going? <laughs> uh, well, yes. Uh, yes, but it's just the usual thing, and that's sort of to practice it, to do more of it. People who go to, uh, you know, um, to get university or other education, say in design or the arts or uh, maybe mechanical engineering or architecture, develop, you know, those kinds of abilities. And I'm sure they use those parts of the brain a lot and they get even better. Somebody who's maybe weaker in the visual thinking, I'm sure, can improve their skills. I was just wondering if you could stimulate it so that I could be a great artist or a uh, musician. <laughs> I, you know, right now there isn't there there isn't a shortcut. No, you know, uh, yes, everything worthwhile takes time in life, including education. Yeah, I just wanted an instant synapse over there. How about how about things like emotions? You know, I mean. Um, I, I did see something recently on TV about something with brain, and it wasn't on in your show, but about that brain imaging showed emotions. Have you done any work on that about how um, emotions can can be seen on that same fMRI? Uh, well, when when somebody's in ex- experiencing an emotion, certainly when they're experiencing a very strong emotion, you see activation in in particular brain areas. The one that's that occurs prominently is the amygdala. So if you have a clearly, if you have a strong negative emotion, then it's extremely likely there'll be activation in the amygdala. And you can you can. Just as we learn what pattern of areas corresponds to language processing, other patterns of 
areas that correspond to various kinds of emotional processing, and interestingly, social processing, dealing with other people, thinking, you know, when you're interacting with somebody else, or even just reading about somebody else, you see this, this social circuit come to life. Hmm. You know, I, I, I used... Um, I, I grossly underestimated how social creatures we are. You know, you'd think that, that students at Carnegie Mellon, you know, many of them are going to be technically oriented, but you put anybody in a scanner and have them read any old narrative that involves human beings, and their social circuit is going to come to play. They're going to start thinking about the person's motivations, their concerns, and so on. So we, we do a lot of social processing just just uh, naturally. So there's a, you know, we, we say, oh, are we a visual thinker? Are we a verbal thinker? But some of us are, are very much social thinkers. Hmm. So people who are more introverted, will that show differently? For example, someone who's outgoing and friendly like you and I or someone who is like a, you know, a wallflower. How does that how does that show up? You know, there I I believe that there was a study published showing differential activation of the amygdala by extroverts versus introverts. Hmm. A researcher whose name is uh Canley, uh I I I believe that that he he showed that. Yes. So Wow. That, that comes out. You know, anything that's sort of essentially human is coming from your brain. And if it's coming from your brain, some imaging technique already has captured it or will be able to capture it. How about someone who has a diabolical mind? Someone who is a criminal. I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, like the movie Minority Report when you can predict how someone is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what they're going to do. If, are they going to commit a crime or Yes. Do they have evil thoughts? You know, is that okay, that's scary? Can you see something on the brain in that fMRI? Uh, you know, there there are studies. Um, the, the, I have a colleague at the University of Pittsburgh who studies people who are, uh, you know, sort of. Um, I don't think the technical word is psychopath or sociopath, but people who have uh, very uh, continuous and problems with social. Uh, no, uh, violating social norms, and so most of them have had serious run-ins with the law, and you see somewhat different brain activity responses from them. Yes. Wow. You see, and 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 you you I I, I don't remember whether you use the word evil or not, but it gives you a slightly different conception of evil. It it becomes much more of a biological uh, attribute than a moral attribute. Right. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, did, I don't know if you saw the movie. It's an old movie. I don't know if you're old enough to even remember it, but Clockwork Orange, I saw that. Do you remember that movie? Mm-hmm. Yes. And where he, the guy had a real a cruel, cruel aspect toward him. And then they reprogrammed him, remember, by watching movies. And I'm just wondering if something like that would even be possible. It made so much sense to me at the time when I saw the movie. What do you think? I think things like that are being done. You know, a lot of psychiatry these days has to do with um, use of medications to dampen various problematic behaviors. Right. And so that's a, a sort of a chemical treatment for it, but they are exactly changing the, the brain function 
away from some maladaptive behavior to something more uh, um, useful, productive. So if someone is consistently a sociopath, let's say, let's just use that word. I know that you didn't really want to use that word, but let's just do it because a lot of people understand that. And if there is a certain place in the brain that they're thinking in that, would there be some way to activate another part of the brain, maybe stimulate another part of the brain to or do something to divert that that synapse away or something? Uh, well, it's, it's a little bit out of my area of expertise, and, and I'm not sure that it's currently doable. But it's extremely likely that within some, you know, sort of handful number of years, I don't know, three, six, something like that, that 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 pattern of activity will be changed through some external method, such as a medication, maybe some sort of brain stimulation or something like that. Yes. Yeah, so if, and I, I'm not sure it's going to be a single place in the brain, by the way. Uh-huh. Often these things are circuits, you know, uh-huh. a set of places that work together. But, um, you know, uh, there will be opportunities, I think, to intervene, you know, normal and, and and intervene for good. So if you can if you can make someone's problem brain based problem go away, that's considered a good. Right, right. So are we going to be able to read minds? Is my husband going to be able to read my mind and um, my my clients and maybe other attorneys or people who are going to look at my secrets? Is that going to happen? Uh, well, you'd have to climb into right now into an MRI scanner, and and be very compliant and agree to to think simple thoughts. And under those circumstances, he could tell whether you think of an apple or, or a hammer. And that's not that's not too big an invasion of privacy. No, not yet. <laughs> but, but you you would have to you'd have to agree and sort of be cooperative, and you'd still need this you know two million dollar machine to use and so on and the and the, this this advanced machine learning technique to recognize the patterns so it's the technology exists it's doable um i i don't you know it, we're but we're still limited to relatively simple concepts that we can identify uh and so how are the results being used right now how you know for for what you're doing? How are the results being used? Are Is they... anything useful coming out of this right <laughs> yeah. now? I didn't mean it like that. I mean, like, how are you using it? I know it's useful. I can see that no, it was well, useful. No. It's well, you know. <laughs> You know, what we're trying to do is just to develop the technique, understand the theory, understand what it tells us about human thought. We're only beginning to put it to use. And, and, and this is just one very limited example, and that is, as you mentioned, I do a lot of research in autism. And one facet of autism is um, disruption of social processing difficulties in interacting with others. And uh, I think that this could, so I I think it's possible that concepts related to uh, social interaction, such as friendship or loyalty or reciprocity or altruism or so on, things like that, that those pro- those those kinds of concepts may be represented differently in, in autism. So we're working towards um, a research program whereby we um, identify, you know, characterize 
these social thoughts in control participants and in participants with autism, and to see how those concepts might differ in autism. Hmm. That would be wonderful. So if you could see how the difference is, then what, what would you expect that might be able to happen, either with chemical or with some kind of stimulation that maybe could, could help those who are autistic? Possibly, or maybe a behavioral inter- intervention. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the people talk all, very often about the brain plasticity, you know, and it means, you know, the adaptability, the capability of learning, of changing, and we're constantly learning and changing. Our brains never stand still. There are always things happening. And um, so while medication is a possibility, various kinds of um, interventions are a possibility, but I wouldn't um, undersell the possibility of uh, behavioral interventions. So as you think, therefore you are, <laughs> so to speak, you know, when they say your your thoughts create your reality and your thoughts can really change your world, is that is that what you're kind of talking about? Well, yes, and, and you're, yes, uh, it, it's the thoughts of people with autism that create, it's their brains that create their world. I mean, that, that's, that's... Isn't it a, a for certain, all of us? Like if you exactly. if you see the world, you know, with your glass half empty or you, the, your glass half full, isn't it how you perceive the world, that that's how the world is? Yes. You know, optimism or pessimism, autism, paranoia, all of these things are clearly in our head. We've known that for a long time. Right. But what's becoming clearer is it's in our brain and in, our, in the biology of the brain. And, you know, it, and it's no longer... Well, we, we can now attribute it to biological factors. You know, uh, we used to think of people who were addicted to something as, I don't know, bad people. Right. And But now we can take less of a moral stance because we know there are brain mechanisms that are more or less susceptible to certain addictions, and it's it's really a biological factor. Right. So if everything's biological, I mean, how, I wonder how that... It's going to work with people who are criminals. And, you know, you, you do have choices. You know, there is such a thing as free choice, correct? Yes. <laughs> yes, I have you to pause. I mean? But, you know, I, I think some people, I'm sure some people are born with brains that don't work like the rest of us. Right. And I, I think that some some behaviors that we would call evil emerge from biological factors. Mm. Some of those some of those things I think we we can control and we do control, but at the extreme I can imagine some that are are just such powerful biological uh forces that it might be difficult to get them under control. You know, and they're they're harmless things, you know, like it's it's very hard for well-intentioned um, you know, morally upstanding people sometimes to control their diet. Yeah. It's very hard when you're hungry, you know, you're cold and there's food there. It's very tough to say no. Especially if it's a chocolate chip cookie. Exactly. <laughs> and, and and it's not really evil 
if you if you fail to resist, <laughs> you know it's a powerful force. You know, right. nature, nature put hunger in us so we wouldn't starve, so we'd feed our bodies. Right. Nature put a, a little bit of paranoia in us so that enemies can't sneak up on us and kill us. Exactly. So these are all natural parts of being a human being, and in some people, one or other part isn't working quite right. It's either underperforming or overperforming, and it throws things off balance. And it's just a, a different way of looking at at humanity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it's going to require legal scholars to look at, at issues of, you know, sort of criminality, insanity, and so on, from a from a from a new light, I certainly don't know what the answers are. I'm, so, so instead of having jails in the future, you'll go in and have a a, um, a, a brain stimulation. <laughs> Perhaps well, we, we, you know we, that would be a already, lot cheaper. <laughs> well, we already have things like chemical castration. That's you know that that's yeah. a biological intervention right. to deal with the criminal activity. Right. Right. But, I mean, if we got it to the point where we would really know there could be stimulation or something that would change that, how they use that area of the brain, if you could get that well, I mean, that could be really a breakthrough. Get rid of all the jails. Just go in and get reprogrammed. (laughs) That's right. Or imagine a genetic intervention that changes things so that that bad circuit doesn't develop. Yes. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? But it would be amazing, but it would change us as human beings. And I think that's a big ethical, moral moral question that we have to think about. So we think about, you know, is, is cloning bad? And, you know, that's a, that's a big question, and we need to think about that. But we're going to, I think in coming decades, be able to intervene in the fundamental biology of mankind. We're sort of going to be able to tinker with the species. And it's going to be tempting because some biologist is going to say, I'm going to be able to do away with such and such bad disease. And society is going to be very tempted to say, okay, go ahead, fix it so nobody has such and such disease anymore. Right. But that kind of tinkering will inherently change what we're like. And that's a big step. But haven't we evolved over centuries, you know, from the caveman oh, and yes. woman? You so, know, mo- I mean, yes. that's that's part of the evolution, you know, and we're just But that's the... a very slow change. I mean, we, we, we've yeah. been here for millions of years to right. suddenly start uh, fooling around, modifying our biological basis is a gigantic step that we have to sort of be extraordinarily careful with. There's a lot of things to be careful with. How about um, the research that you're doing? Does it have implications for perhaps education in the future? Should we be designing curricula and instructional programs that, that you know, take this into consideration, the brain representation? Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. You know, we, we, we sort of mock the idea of teachers teaching to a test, but one can imagine teachers teaching to a brain scan, you know, sort of saying this is what an expert in algebra, this is what the brain of an algebra expert looks like, and I'm going to teach the students in my class until their brains look like this, and I'm going to give them all the right exercises, equations to solve, and so on, until their brain activity looks like this. 
Wow. Well, you know, I remember because I started out teaching high school and and I got a master's in ed. And I, and I remember learning how in the teaching learning process, you're supposed to use as many modalities as possible, you know, for the kinesthetic learners, for the visual learners, for the auditory learners. You need to try and present with as many moda- modalities as possible because everybody learns differently. So this is... Um, this is a whole next level of that, right? Yes. So you can, and so you can, you could sort of teach, teach brains explicitly. You know, that education <laughs> is is brain training. You're not trying to make their livers better or their right. kidneys. You are educating brains. But there's and, emotions involved in it too, because you have a great teacher, and you get excited, and you want to learn. You know, you just can't say, "Okay, we're going to feed your brain right now." That isn't going to get me excited enough to want to learn how to do all this calculus. That's right. But the motivation, too, is a brain state. Mm. So imagine taking a motivation pill before your uh, algebra class. (laughs) I'd have to. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yes, well, (laughs) well, you know, many of us have coffee before, you know, uh, something that requires attention, even now. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, you know, coffee's this sort of moderately harmless chemical, caffeine, mm-hmm. that makes our brain process a little bit faster, a little bit better. So we do that. Right. Um, yeah, and you could uh, yeah, and you could ask, can we sort of me- modify the educational process uh, um, and make it better, more effective by virtue of understanding brain function. So would I need to have somebody, would my teacher need to know what's in my brain and have me go through an fMRI to know what how I needed to learn versus what someone else might need to learn the same thing? You know, I don't think we need to put every child in the United States <laughs> in an, an fMRI scanner, although it's <laughs> an interesting idea. But I think children who are having difficulty who for one reason or another aren't learning as they should, maybe it, it would be helpful to know what's going on in their brain. So some, some of the research that I and, and other laboratories have addressed is what occurs in children with dyslexia who have trouble reading. Right. And the, the, there's a really strong consensus there that uh, the problem that children have with dyslexia in that case, I think can be localized to a particular part of the brain. It's sort of um, the parietal area, and very likely, almost certainly, having to do with the processes of translating from the written characters to the sounds that they correspond to individual characters or or groups of characters. So the the phonological decoding, the letter to phoneme. Uh, processing, which um, which in children with dyslexia isn't going w- quite as well, and you can see uh, um, a lower level of activation, an underactivation in this left parietal temporal area in children with dyslexia. Mm. Now, the interesting thing is that if you give children intensive remedial instruction, in, in our study, we gave these children 100 hours of this very targeted instruction with one highly trained teacher working with three children at a time for 100 hours. After that 100 hours, that brain area 
was no longer activating, underactivating. It was activating normally, and their reading had improved uh, significantly. That's incredible. So that that's a kind of a, of a of a brain change. It's sort of an, uh, done with an understanding of brain function, and showing that the that the learning, the success of the child, comes about when when that brain area begins to function normally. That's incredible. You know, it makes what comes to my mind when you say that is, and I was kind of going back to the issue of of people who commit crimes. If you had in the prisons that people were in the prisons were watching movies and seeing people being compassionate and loving and kind and almost being brainwashed, so to speak, with the opposite of their bad behavior, you know, because they hang around with each other, you know, in, in these prisons and they learn from each other and they have thoughts that they discuss that are probably the same, um, shall I say, you know, uh, criminal thoughts. But if they were involved in really compassionate stuff, like some of the people who do some of their uh, religious things in, in prison, wouldn't that be a way of changing them? If you know that this kind of uh, intensive, so to speak, indoctrination does work in some places, why wouldn't it work in that? Well, it might. You know, I, I, I have no expertise in, in criminal reform. And I don't, I, I don't, I don't know it works. There is a, you know, a high degree of recidivism, such that many people who commit one crime then subsequently commit another. So whatever we're doing doesn't, I don't think, is so wonderfully effective. And we have something like, what is it, two million people in, imprisoned in the United States? Right, but it would be interesting for, you know, using the same kind of research like you did with these kids who are autistic or have reading problems or dyslexia and, and kind of set forth that kind of new kind of brainwashing or brain exercise with compassion and goodness and morality and all those things that, that we want to um, introduce and help these people so they don't go back on the streets and commit crimes. Just just for thought, I guess we're just playing with it. I want to reintroduce you because you're wonderful. We are speaking tonight with Dr. Marcel Adam-Just, who is the D.O. Heb Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at Carnegie Mellon University, and he's director of its Center for Cognitive Brain Imaging, and I saw him on 60 Minutes, and I really want to go back to what you call thought identification, and I call uh, brain reading or mind reading. So what what exactly is thought identification in your definition? Um, thought identification is the ability to uh, identify a person's thought from their pattern of brain activity. And so... What what is cognitive neuroscience? I'm just getting these definitions here. Oh well, um, neuroscience is the study of the biology of the brain and its components, down to individual neurons and membranes and synapses, and how they how they work, their anatomy, their function, their physiology. So all of that is neuroscience. Cognitive neuroscience tries to relate all of that um, biology to, to, to thought. So c- 
the cognitive part refers to cognition or thought or knowing, and how you get mind out of brain. It's 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 you know it's been an, a philosophical problem going back for centuries. Descartes had something interesting to say about it, but when when you have we we think of ourselves phenomenologically, we think of ourselves as thinking beings, rational, emotional, and so on. And all of that is underpinned by this biological infrastructure. Cognitive neuroscience relates the biological infrastructure to the mental beings that we are. Yeah. So when Leslie Stahl spoke to you, she was a little bit worried about the same things that I was worried about, which is why I wanted to get you back on here. And let's talk about the the ethics and the privacy issues with regard to mind reading or the um, thought identification. How, what you and I were talking last week about this—that you know, sometimes technology is far beyond um, the the architecture of building in the 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 concerns, like privacy concerns and ethical concerns. What do you think about that? Well, it's time to start thinking about it because, you know, the most private thing about us, our thoughts, is now becoming accessible, you know, through this technology. Now, I don't, I don't think it's a problem with anybody interrogating us in the next year or two, but it's just the technology is going to get better and better. And that means that we have to think about what it means that this, this this biological substrate is readable, decodable by technological devices. It's like having your, I don't know, your the results of your blood test, uh, you know, pinned to your pocket, or your DNA analysis, you know, sitting on your lapel. Um, so there, there are these properties, attributes that we have as biological beings that are now measurable. And we have to think about to where are we going to store this information? Who will we make it available to? Under what conditions uh, would we want to use it? Um, I, I think it's a, it's a, a, this, this new technology lets you get at an extremely private part of, of people. Not, not, not yet, not this year. But in the future, in a not-too-distant future, I think we will be able to um, decode what people are thinking and a much wider range of thoughts than Apple and Hammer. Wow. You know, when we were talking before about these, and we saw on TV the fMRI machine, it's a, it's a huge machine. It's not something that's... Uh, you know, that you can just point at someone. But I remember when years ago when I was on a school board and we had to buy computers for the school district and they filled an entire room and they weren't even as big as the computer that I have in just, you know, probably my cell phone, <laughs> you know, or yeah. my or my PDA. And so we, we've seen in such a short period of time that computers, which were huge, are now tiny little things. And what about when we get an fMRI that is very tiny? What about using it covertly? This is what I concern, you know, I'm concerned about. What if somebody decides to use that 
like you and I had talked before, like you're sitting at the airport and somebody is putting this beaming it on your forehead. What about that? Uh, so the technology doesn't exist now, but really I think it's plausible plausible it'll be there in 15 or 20 years. And, you know, if the thought is occurring in your brain, some electrical activity, then some sensor in principle will be able to sense it from outside your head and possibly remotely. Hmm. And so, you know, exposing the most private part of us, you know, I think more private than our bodies. Uh, so there it is. I think it'll be possible. And um, it'll, cha- how, it'll change everything. You and I had talked about this, how it that, could change that's right. everything. That's right. And, you know, right now, you know, Nobody really knows what other people are thinking unless they know them well. And uh, and you can sort of stop to some extent. You can hide your thoughts by, you know, sort of um, hiding your facial expression, not talking and so on. But I think that's going to change. It's sort of like, I don't know, like a, a mental nudist colony, so to speak. <laughs> a mental nude. I love it. <laughs> and, I... and, you know, it, it, it'll be a different world. And now we're not used to seeing other people without their clothes. Uh, And we're not used to seeing them where where we can see their minds, although there are times that my husband can read my mind. I'm thinking something and he will say it. It almost, I get startled, you know, or sometimes I, my secretary and I will say the same thing exactly at once. You know, we're thinking, we're somehow connecting uh, extrasensory perception or something. That's right. Well, you know, we use the word intimacy usually for physical things. And I think that what's going to happen is a gradual enablement of this kind of mental intimacy. And I, I don't know exactly what, what to do with it or what to do about it, but I think that it's, it's going to come. I, I, it's going to be a, you know, it's going to be a different world. Total you know? transparency. You know, or, or at least <laughs> a lot of transparency, I, I, I think, whereby, yes. You know, so, I, so I just th- can't imagine, you know, if the government sit, you know, I mean, you can think about some of the, the worrisome stuff. Like if you don't like something that maybe the government in power at the time is doing and they can read your thoughts, what will that mean to you for your career? What will that mean to you for your family? What will that mean to you for incarceration but presumably then we'll be also be able to see the thoughts of the people in authority right that's like, true i need to incur incarcerate you to sort of protect my swiss bank account or something like that yeah how about being used as lie detectors uh, people are certainly working on that. That's, that's slightly different, sort of detecting uh, a state of, of lying versus uh, a state of uh, truth-telling. Um, yes, I, 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 I think that, that I'm, I'm sure that that kind of research is occurring with, with brain imaging, you know, as it did before with uh, things like um, probably EEG in the past. And, right. and, and, and similar kinds of approaches can be... Um, applied to the brain function. I think it's it's much, you know, it's deeper to know what a person's thinking than to know whether he's lying or not. Right, right. It's it's a much deeper uh, yes. level. Yeah. Yes. So, um, 
How about neuromarketing? That that's a little worrisome too. The commercial uh, aspects. What what are your thoughts about that? Uh, it's it's happening. Um, there were there were some interesting studies that that um, where researchers found that you know what which soft drink a person responded positively to, or what is it about a soft drink that would make the participants respond positively? And you could just study the brain function and see what what it is. And then you could sort of, you know, concoct, get the recipe for a favorable soft drink and sell it and market it and so on. So I, I think that, that that's doable. It, it, it started in a small way. I don't think a huge amount of it is being done now. But that's right. You you could you could market to people's brains directly and bypassing this sort of uh, their minds and trying to persuade them just go for the gold to start with. Exactly. It, it, and it kind of reminded me of Minority Report where, you know, where Tom Cruise walks into the stores and they sell, you know, because of, they could read his eyes and his brain and they could see who he was and what he likes. Oh, you bought this. Oh, you would like this. This is something you'd like. <laughs> it yeah. almost is, uh, you know, when you're on the computer and, and your computer, if you go back to Amazon and Amazon says, oh, you've bought these books. I'm sure you'd be interested in this privacy book. Or you might be interested in looking at something that was written by Dr. Just, you know. That, that, that's right. But it's a little so, bit worse. I think it's far more invasive. Uh, yes. And, you know, and, and these kinds of things that you talk about on the web, that's being discussed now in that Amazon sort of has a, 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 re, a reasonably good profile of you, of what, what your tastes are in books and other things. Netflix knows what I like in movies. Exactly. And you know, see, and and all of that could be put together, and you could make up a, a very detailed profile of a person. And they're doing these dossiers now. This is this is a huge privacy issue now, right now. Yeah. But but just imagine if they didn't even have to do that. They didn't even have to bother. Well, with this that. is in some ways cheaper yeah. and easier, you know, because they're all <laughs> using the web. You know, I, I believe. You know, I I think that some of the large uh, search engines look at the content programs look at the content of your email sure google yes I, well okay yeah you're, i mean they do less discreet than I. no yes, no no i do. mean they all are doing that that this is and they bring that. up ads that are relevant then sure. to the content of your email now it's sort of impersonal it's just a program but still that means somewhere but they sell it yeah they sell it and they share it and is somebody judging you perhaps in a way that you shouldn't be judged. Yeah, not yet, not yet, but the, the capability is certainly developing. Oh, and they are doing it now. They, they definitely are. But let's get back to the brain, because I think that that is something that is even, like you said, so much deeper. Now, let's talk a little bit about the cell phone, because I know you did research on that, and you know, in California, we have a law that states that you cannot use your cell phone while driving unless you have a hands-free device, okay? And kids under 18 cannot use a cell phone at all when driving. So um, let's talk about that. Is, is talking on a cell phone during driving any worse than talking to your passenger in the car? Um, yes, it is. But let me just say, while it's probably good to have a law not to allow you to hold your cell phone in your hand. 
the problem isn't the holding. The problem is using your brain for the conversation. Oh. So when you're engaged in a cell phone conversation, the the brain resources, the brain activity that's normally allocated to uh, driving goes a lot down. In our study, it went down 40%. Your brain allocated 40% less resources to driving when, when the person in our study was simply listening to someone else talk. Mm. So, you know, it, it's a very risky thing to be doing. You know, if you're, if you're talking on a cell phone in a place where there could be pedestrians or cars suddenly changing direction or stopping suddenly, you are taking a risk and you're putting your fellow citizens at risk. It is, it is a bad thing to do. And, you know, there are people dying by the thousands each year because of cell phone use. And I, I think that's wrong. I don't think we have the right to be putting our fellow citizens at risk that way. So tell me, help me understand the difference between when you're talking on the cell phone um, in a hands-free versus talking to the person next to you and, you know, your passengers in the car. Well, one big difference is that your passenger in the car can tell when the driving situation is very demanding of your attention. So, you know, there are cars whizzing by, you're in a difficult intersection, something like that. The road's very slippery. And and considerate passengers stop talking at that time, or they understand why the driver stops talking to them because they can see it. By contrast, a cell phone conversation partner has no idea what's going on in the traffic around the car and just keeps talking regardless of whether there's a difficult intersection to be dealt with or the road's slippery right there. And the problem is that when someone's talking to you, the processing of the of that spoken language is so automatic, it goes into your ear and into your brain and gets processed and consumes some brain resources and pulls away resources from the uh, from the driving. Hmm. And you can't stop it. You can't say to yourself, "Okay, I'm at a dangerous intersection, so I'll just stop listening to the person on the cell phone." You can't do it. You can't will yourself not to process spoken language, hmm. and so it gets in and it does. It 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 draws away the uh, brain resources from the driving, and it makes your driving poorer. In our study, we measured how well um, our uh, participants could stay in their lane. In a, in a driving simulator. Right. And when they're listening to someone talk, they weave in and out of their lanes more. Huh. It, you know, now, it this was on the cell phone, right? Uh, in, in our study, they're just listening to someone talk to them over earphones. I see. I so see. just listening to someone talk makes you weave in your lane. So it doesn't matter if it's hands-free or not. Exactly, exactly. So we're doing, you know, our society a disservice if we draw, if we use cell phones while we're driving in, you know, in demanding situations. Maybe, you know, if you're out in the desert and there's no cars in sight and the weather's great, I suppose there's no problem with using a cell phone. Right, but you still might be, um, your attention might di be diverted to something in the road. 
That's right. And if some, you know, yeah, so the likelihood of something a coyote ha- walks out, you that's know? right. You're going to be you're going to be slower to detect it, and so there is an increased risk. But driving through the desert is probably safer than you know a place you know around a playground where a child might run out. Hmm. So it, it's it's a it's a very it's it's a new technology, you know. Having cell phones um, being so ubiquitous is only about ten years old. Right. And and it's it's a great convenience. It you know it has a safety factor. It, it, you know it has a social facilitation effect. You know I I think they're a net boon to society. Right. Right. At the same time, I think they introduce a very significant risk on the road. And and you know uh, the the number of people who die each year in road related in traffic related accidents is forty two thousand in the United States annually year after year forty two thousand people die that's a gigantic number and we could cut down by probably by a few thousand if we didn't use cell phones while we're driving or certainly not in in demanding driving situations. Wow. Well, that's interesting because, like I said, we have this this long California that that kind of just says hands free. We don't have a, a bunch more time, but I did want to ask you one more thing that that I'm worried about, and that is, what about memory loss? Um, what do you find in your brain scans that you've learned about memory loss, and any any thoughts for the future on how we can protect ourselves? Well, the best uh, brains deteriorate with age, like like everything else. No fun. Uh, but the way to, to sort of counteract that to, to some degree is to continue learning, to continue reading, continue doing new things, to continue exercising, to to get good nutrition. And, and it's, it's a little bit like taking care of your body. You're, you're not going to stop your body from aging, but you can, you can slow down the process and do countervailing things. So... Um, so people who have uh, more education have a little bit of protection, a little bit more protection against uh, brain diseases and brain aging. Um, and as I say, like many other facets of aging, brain aging is inevitable. But you, you, but common sense kinds of things counteract it. For example, wait, I'm going to have to. It's time to go. I can't believe it. You are, we got to have you back, especially when we get some more of your research out here. You're really wonderful. We, we really appreciate learning about all of the mind reading and about cell phones. And I want to thank you, Dr. Just. You're terrific, and we'll have you again. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. on Wednesdays. And please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and you can write us about what you'd like to know about privacy. Thank you. I hope you'll join us next week. Bye. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.